0: Here we go, Stephen Kaplan, George Washington University. Welcome back to our podcast.
1: Thank you very much. I'm a long-time listener, and I'm happy to be back on the show.
0: Your fan favorite, probably <laughs> after the electronic tango. Well, I'm very happy to be tangoing here with you once again. <laughs> You are a scholar of China and Latin America, with a focus on Chinese finance throughout the region. We tend to think of Argentina as an interesting case study in the relationship U.S., Latin America, and China, and here's why, and tell me if you think there's anything to this. There are countries in the region that have struggled to maintain relations with both and have been punished by the Trump administration for doing so. I'm thinking particularly of the Trump administration reaction to the recognition of China over Taiwan by El Salvador by Panama, by the Dominican Republic some time ago, the United States has remained close with Argentina despite what appears to me to be quite a close relationship with China, even after the exit of Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, who originally brought Beijing and Buenos Aires very close, and the election of a very pro-American, very pro-Western, very pro-market leader Mauricio Macri. And yet, I don't see any distance between the U.S. and Argentina. Is this notable? Is this inevitable? Is it about relative size or all of importance to the U.S.? What's going on that Argentina seems to be triangulating in a way that others, you know, haven't quite pulled off?
1: So I guess a few things come to mind immediately. One is the difference between Central America and South America in relation to China, where you have the issue regarding one-China policy, you have this political conditionality in Central America, This seems to be sort of the opening spigot for finance and investment. There's not that same kind of series of political conditions in South America. So I think that's one difference. Also, I think it's worthwhile to highlight uh, President Macri has worked very hard in the triangulation, right? Uh, He's been to the United States, I believe, at least four times, China four times, I believe, as well. So, uh, Or at least meetings with both Chinese and U.S. officials uh, at a high level in both countries over time. Um, So I think that's another key factor as well. I also think in terms of the type of investment that you're getting in Argentina, um, a lot of it tends to be oriented more towards infrastructure rather than necessarily very sensitive issues surrounding telecommunications and so forth. There's obviously been some concern about different investment, including nuclear power and even more so space satellites, but I think that's been less of the narrative relative to the other stories in terms of cargo railways and infrastructure, urban infrastructure.
0: There was a suggestion after Jair Bolsonaro was elected in Brazil that there is a way for a country of the scale of Brazil um, to actually move away from China and to go all in politically with the United States, or in this case with the Trump administration, but it seems very quickly that Brazil made a similar calculation to Mauricio Macri's in Buenos Aires that it's neither necessary nor prudent. Well, and I think to some extent, part of the reflection
1: of that is the trade relationship, right? China is basically Argentina's second largest trade partner. Another part of that is infrastructure plans as well, right? If you think of both Brazil and Argentina, these are two countries whose public policy currently is circling around very big infrastructure plans. But at the same time, their two countries are also struggling with austerity, budgetary balance, things along these lines. So China represents an opportunity to basically be able to pursue those infrastructure plans while at the same time pursuing budget discipline, which is very advantageous in a way that we don't necessarily see the same kind of infrastructure investment, either from the private sector, or other Western actors, the same extent we see with China. So I think that there's a realization that China creates a real economic
0: opportunity here. From the perspective that, that we've started with here, from the capitals in Brazil and Buenos Aires, this seems like a diplomatic win for these governments. They're able to maintain a good relationship with the United States, they're able to benefit from Chinese largely infrastructure investment and increasing market access to China. From the White House perspective, this is arguably a loss. I mean, the message has been watch out for predatory lending and debt trap diplomacy, stay away from China, the US is your partner. Let's talk about it from the perspective of the Trump administration. Have they lost in this debate with some of the biggest economic powers in their own hemisphere?
1: I mean, I think to some extent if you think of you know, the landscape within South America, rather than necessarily through a Cold War prism, but if you think of it more in terms of current day economic competition, you know, there's plenty of sort of scope for the United States to compete. It's a question for the US policy community to find out what Piece of that economic uh, possibility, are you going to carve out? Right, you know it's pretty clear in terms of Western companies and particularly U.S. companies, there's limited interest in sort of these big-ticket infrastructure projects. But as we see more opportunities coming along in a place like Argentina. Um, that is now developing more of a technology and telecommunication presence, more unicorns in terms of that industry, et cetera. There may be opportunities to tap a different kind of expertise, a different kind of capital within our private sector uh, that, that can be advantageous. So I don't think it necessarily has to be a zero sum game between uh, the United States and China within Argentina. And even the kind of infrastructure investment we've seen, right, where you have a cargo railway. Uh, within Argentina, goes through 18 provinces, covers 70% of the country, it gets goods to ports a lot more quickly, that's going to benefit the United States, Europe, China, many different actors.
0: So by envisioning a, a win-win scenario here where the United States, private sector plays a critical role in infrastructure development in Latin America at the same time that China provides, you know, multi-billion dollar financing, it presupposes that the White House is incorrect in its assessment of the quality of Chinese lending. I mean, I think the White House has been explicit in in describing chinese lending as intentionally designed to provoke defaults the capture of physical assets in these countries and as having an agenda that will create another debt crisis in latin america as we saw in the 1980s from your description you seem to see it as as less nefarious as capital that's affordable and being put to productive uses do i have that
1: yeah i think what's key you know obviously there are costs and benefits to china's relationship in latin america and argentina like any other creditor But it's important to understand sort of the intentions of the creditor and the sequencing of the investment of that creditor. So a lot of this debt trap narrative, if we can segue for a moment to Venezuela, reflects the debt problems that Venezuela has had. But if you look at the way debt has been built up over time, the debt trap narrative just doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Uh, Essentially, since we've had a transition from Chavez to Maduro, uh, and since About about 2013, you have a country uh, in China that's been deleveraging or unwinding its financial ties in Venezuela because it too has been concerned about, uh, even though there is a political, a cooperative relationship between Maduro and China, there's been a lot of concern about economic policy um, and the willingness uh, to reform. Uh, within Venezuela for a very long time. So I think in some ways, when you think about what's happened in a place like Venezuela, rather than a debt trap where China intentionally enters, uh, offers very cheap financing in order to capture equity abroad, a more accurate description would be, you know, China's learning moving up its creditor, creditor curve. It basically thought it could underwrite its risk with commodities in Venezuela and in a lot of ways was proven wrong. Um, so you really have a mispricing of risk in Venezuela rather than necessarily a debt trap. And I think throughout Latin America, we see sort of cost and benefits of uh, the China, Chinese relationship. Sometimes investment projects are good for development and work well. Other times, in the case of Venezuela, uh, we have a lot of corruption, clientelism, problems, and we don't get the development that maybe we
0: get elsewhere. Yeah, and you've you've written about a creditor trap that, in fact, China has found itself in an uncomfortable position that far from designing its lending to encourage default and then to seize assets, in fact, quite the opposite, it finds itself with great regret that it has lended in a place that no longer can service its debts.
1: Exactly. If you think about it from China's perspective, that's invested, you know, billions of dollars in a soft power campaign about state-to-state cooperation and development, you know, what's happened in Venezuela, right, is a, you know, a scarlet letter (laughs) on the face of China's development projects, right? And so from their perspective, it's been very contentious domestically. uh, And in fact, there's been a lot of reason to sort of mitigate that Venezuelan risk. And what we see over time in the structure of Chinese financing in the region, moving away from some of the state-to-state investment and increasingly uh, oriented more towards equity um, on a private sector level outside the state balance sheet,
0: and I think one thing that's been really valuable about your scholarship has been to look at Chinese styles of lending as they change and some of the motivations, um, because I think in Washington, you can get caught up in this Cold War mindset that everything has some geostrategic and security implication and not recall that there's excess capacity of labor and steel in China, that they want to export their brands and open new markets, and of course, want to access commodities in a more effective way by building up infrastructure. And so one has to think about what their at least stated motivations are in evaluating the style of lending?
1: Sure. And certainly, I don't want to suggest that there's not, you know, downsides to Chinese investment, right? Because obviously, like any creditor, there are costs and benefits to this relationship. It's just sort of accurately assessing what those costs and benefits are. So, for example, in my book, which will be coming out next year, Rise of Patient Capital, The Political Autonomy of Global Finance in Latin America, one of the themes I deal with is even though in a lot of ways China's able to help countries meet these infrastructure deficits give them more fiscal flexibility, as we were talking about as well, there are some very serious commercial costs. And so a lot of the kind of costs that we see reflect the local content that is attached to these financing deals. Uh, So because China, in a lot of ways, hedges its risk with micro-conditions rather than macro-conditions, so instead of having budget discipline, privatization, all these other things, they instead say, let's amp up the local content we have excess capacity in concrete and steel and Mostly other industries. Yes, yeah, sorry, Chinese content. We have excess capacity at home. Uh, can we export our materials, our concrete, our steel, our machinery, um, in order to have an outlet for this domest- for this Chinese overcapacity? So, in a lot of ways, the key issues from a development standpoint for Latin America is how to negotiate to increase local content for Latin American countries, right? And so the real kind of key issues are ones that revolve around dependency, right? China's demand for commodities, um, you know, importing a lot of Chinese capital goods and machinery and the possibility of uh, having industrial stagnation as a result, right? I think these are some of the real key costs uh, in terms of Chinese
0: investment. To me, I mean, One of the awkward ways that you have to engage on this subject is the question of a debt trap diplomacy, there's two parties, right, to the lending and borrowing. And what it presupposes is that much of Latin America is governed like Venezuela has been, meaning misusing, misappropriating money, not putting it to productive uses, and ending up in a debt trap, not of China's design, arguably, and I think we agree on that in many cases, but because of poor governance and poor transparency. Argentina, some of the projects inherited by this government from Cristina fernandez Kirchner. May well fall into that category. There are questions about whether hydroelectric dam in the cell, right. for example, had political purposes in the base of the former president, um, and was not in the public works handling in general left a lot to be desired. It's awkward, I say, because this suggests that the governments themselves are not capable of putting this money to good use and so are particularly vulnerable to the lack of macro conditions that China
1: imposes in its debt structures. And I think that's the real tension, right, uh, in terms of this creditor-debtor relationship, is ultimately China forgoes these macroeconomic conditions, emphasizes in the commercial conditions, traditional Western lending shares the onus, shares the burden, uh, Of the oversight, supervision, transparency. transparency, In a lot of ways, uh, China punts that locally, right? And this is what we mean about a learning curve for China, because then they're faced with putting that discretion in the local government, which may work out very well, but at the same time, it may turn disastrous as we've seen in places like Venezuela. But to be clear, oftentimes China is not the only creditor, right? So take the Venezuelan case for a moment. China is responsible for about 18% Of Venezuela's total indebtedness, but who's responsible for about half of Venezuela's indebtedness? Uh, Wall Street investors, bond investors, right? So usually, as is the case with any country, as they build up debt over time, it's usually a question of local management, uh, how they employ uh, the debt, and how they employ investments, and are they productive enough to generate growth and repay the debt no matter who the creditor is. So you're exactly right in honing in on local governance as a key issue here and the key Achilles heel of Chinese lending. I think the key part in thinking about how China approaches finance as well is that there's this commercial motivation. So if they see an opportunity for market share in alternative energies and nuclear power, they're quite willing to subsidize interest rates, but it's not because of a debt trap. They're subsidizing interest rates in order to grow their market share. For example, in nuclear energy, Russia has 45% of global nuclear power industry in terms of exports. China has about 9%. So, in order to compete, they offer these subsidized rates. Um, But, uh, you know, ultimately, then again, it comes down to the question of local content because they then hedge this risk with commercial conditions and trying to increase the amount of contract that reflects uh, Chinese capital machinery, etc.
0: Before we conclude, and you know, you focused on how China has been changing, to some degree its lending strategies, a little bit less state-led, some more equity investments. Um, the bank, of the the new development bank, yeah. the BRICS bank, has an interesting model as far as I understand it where you can choose national standards or World Bank standards, which seems to be a recognition that it does benefit the creditor at times to have some conditionality, even if it doesn't quite fit into the narrative of a sort of South South cooperation that respects local sovereignty that example and the and the disaster in Venezuela that China has on its hands do you think it's shaping its practices at all or might going forward i mean you've mentioned this is sort of a scarlet letter in venezuela there's the infamous sri lanka case mm-hmm. um, there's the criticism from the white house fair or not that is branding china as seeking default Um, How do you think all these factors are changing, if at all the way, China might in the future, engage as it continues its massive built-in road infrastructure investments in Latin America?
1: So given that so much of their foreign policy is structured around the idea of non-intervention, they can't well embrace policy conditionality completely. So what we see are, particularly in cases like Venezuela, where macroeconomics has been sort of a key um, uh, dimension of consultation, we do see increased emphasis on you know, uh, monitoring and and words like this coming up, but to your point about New Development Bank, the New Development Bank itself, given that you only have five shareholders, one of the key, and it's sort of a south-to-south institution, uh, a key aspect of that institution is non-intervention, right? But obviously, as China's moved up this learning curve, they're trying to figure out how to hedge this risk without embracing policy conditionality. So what we see in places like New Development Bank is an opening up to a multitude of different strategies, you know, national, international, et cetera, uh, without necessarily embracing policy conditionality directly. We've also seen the AIIB directly support open bidding, concessions, private procurement. Even China itself and Chinese officials have highlighted as Latin America, including Argentina, just uh, you know, published in twenty seventeen. Uh, PPP program, private-public partnership in terms of private procurement. Now we see China increasingly thinking about, okay, maybe we need to enter via the private procurement process, via the private sector. We need to encourage private sector investment more. So rather than embracing policy conditionality ahead, they're increasingly trying to embrace uh, the private sector, or at the very least, state-backed equity funds that are investing in the private sector.
0: And notably, China still borrows from the World Bank with similar motivations, it would seem, to make sure that they have this type of supervision and access to best practices. Exactly, right? So, and you actually even see
1: in the case of the BRI and some of the debt um, management mechanisms that were discussed at the most uh, recent BRI forum, uh, in a lot of ways, the template comes directly from places like the IMF and the World Bank, right? And so you definitely see this toggling as sort of a rising predator between sort of the rhetoric of non-intervention Uh, the past commitments from the West with policy conditionality,
0: and China tried to incrementally find sort of what's the right way. Stephen Kaplan, George Washington University, a global fellow at the Wilson Center and the Latin American program, a great friend of Electronic Tango, and we hope of our podcast.
1: Oh, most definitely. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Make sure you stay tuned every week. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Thanks so much. And thankfully, our producer is a wonderful editor. That's me, Katie Hopkins. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to the Argentina Project podcast on SoundCloud and sign up for our weekly newsletter at wilsoncenter.org slash weekly dash Asado.